Shall we pray together? Oh God, how grateful we are that it is your desire to speak to us and speaking that we might hear and respond with lives of faithfulness and love. We're grateful that you're a God of mercy and kindness, of patience, of abundant grace. We come here today from so many different places with different needs, and so we pray that your spirit will now speak to us through your word and speaking that we might reflect your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 24. Jesus says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. I'm very, very glad for the privilege of being able to be here. Howard and the committee have extended to me an amazingly warm welcome. It was really wonderful to be with a number of people yesterday who gathered here for some early reflection on part of what we're going to continue to consider this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. I've never been to Amarillo before, so it feels like, uh, given the things that Howard's helped me to experience, that I really have just begun to step in to the, uh, the greatness of Amarillo. So it's very fun to have an opportunity to be here. The text that we're looking at this morning is one that no doubt is probably very familiar to you. It comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a text that is frequently spoken about and thought about. And yet it's one that I want to suggest this morning is not necessarily always lived. And yet the whole point of the text is whether we live the truth and not just affirm it or hear it, whether we just acknowledge it, but whether we actually do it. I've thought of the Gospel of Matthew many times as a gospel of surprise or like a smelling salts gospel, as though Matthew is saying, now really breathe deeply of these pungent aromas and just try to fall asleep. I dare you, it's as though he's saying. Just breathe these fumes and then allow yourself to wake up to the reality of the kingdom of God. In the first opening chapters, one to four of Matthew's gospel, The writer Matthew is giving us a portrait of the early experiences and context in which Jesus' life comes into existence and comes to be born and share our experience as human beings, ultimately is baptized, shares in the reality of temptations, calls his disciples, begins his public ministry, and then comes to the first major body of teaching in Matthew's gospel. Sometimes Matthew is thought of as a a gospel that is sort of a presentation of Jesus as the new Moses. There are five bodies of teaching in the same way that we sometimes think of five major bodies of the Torah or bodies of the law. And in this context, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven, that Jesus is laying out a vision, a vision for an entirely new kingdom. A kingdom where relationships are redefined, where power is reordered, where the experiences of our lives are recalibrated by this thing that Jesus calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, no one really understood at that time very much. And in humility, we have to acknowledge that I think we're still discovering a great deal about what the kingdom of God is really about. It's as though Jesus just draws people to be with him. The text says in a very focused way, Jesus calls his disciples to be with him. And then to share in the ministry that he shares. Come and follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fish for people. I want you to be with me, he says, and then I want you to share in the ministry that I have in the world. And what happens in chapters 5 through 7 is Jesus' expression over and over again of just how deeply the kingdom is meant to change how we think about our families, our relationship with our spouses, the vows and the meaning of our words, the significance of our emotions, what we do with our anger, what we do with neighbors and friends, but even also what we do with our enemies. And Jesus completes this whole body of teaching by then culminating by saying, I do not want you to stand at the door and say, good pastor, good sermon, pastor. That is not the outcome that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for people to follow him, to do what it is that he actually teaches. And after having said that, Jesus says that it's going to be a consequence of whether you actually do the truth, whether or not that your life is built on rock or whether it's built on sand. And Matthew, gathering up all of this, says, and all those who heard Jesus' teaching were astounded, for he taught them as one who had authority and not like the scribes who were their usual teachers. Now, the interesting thing about that word authority in Matthew's gospel is that it appears repeatedly in different significant moments. We're going to look at a couple of other moments in the Sunday school class this morning about how Matthew uses that word. But in this context, the thing that distinguishes Jesus' authority is this, that what he says and what he does are the same thing. This is what he's just affirmed at the end of the sermon should be true of us. And Matthew, gathering up those themes, says, because this is actually how Jesus himself actually lives. What he says and what he does are one thing. This is surely one of the great challenges facing the church from the very beginning. Will we actually do what we say and say what we do? It is an amazing convergence, a kind of complementary understanding of how these two themes are meant to be woven together in our lives. Max Dupree, who was for many years involved as the chairman of the board of Fuller Theological Seminary and also the chairman of the Herman Miller Company, a leader in business and industry, a very much admired uh, industry leader, wrote a book about leadership and a number of books. And one of the books is a book which begins with a story about the birth of his granddaughter Zoe, who was born weighing just a little more than one pound. As the grandfather, anxious for doing everything he possibly could to help her, He arrives at the hospital and the head nurse says, Max, this is what you need to do. You need to come every day and you need to very gently stick your hands through the sides of the incubator, stroking Zoe's body and telling her over and over again how much you love her. Because what she needs more than anything else is to be able to connect your voice to your touch. Now, Max uses that as an illustration in a way of leadership. And he says that really all leadership needs to be this convergence of what we say and what we do being one thing. But when he and I were talking recently, we were reflecting on the fact that the reason that's true of any good leader is that it is consummately true of the incarnation. It's true of what God has revealed in Jesus Christ, that what he says and what he does are one thing. We know that the people that in many ways matter the most to us, that make the most constructive impact on our lives, are people whose voice, what they say, and actions, what they do, are actually together. 
Today we celebrate Mother's Day. And part of what makes mothers such extraordinarily important people in our lives is that they're often some of the very first people that ever teach us about this convergence between what we say and what we do. And part of what makes a mother's impact so profound in our lives can be when those two things actually converge, then from the very beginnings of our formation, our life is being formed and shaped by a person who's helping us understand and experience and even expect that what we say and what we do will be one thing. Now, having said this, and concluding that portion of the chapter, then we go on in chapter 8 to two astonishing demonstrations of this. It's not just what you do on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, but it's what you do when you come down from the mount. And what happens in the opening verses of chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel are as shocking, I want to suggest, as almost any verses in Matthew's Gospel. After having heard this importance about how we converge around themes of what we say and what we do. Then we see this in the opening verses of chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. and There was a leper who came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. See, it's one thing to affirm on the mountain that we should really be better people. That's often what a Sunday morning might be. A moment when we affirm that we should be better people. But the question is, what are we going to do on Monday through Saturday? And what are we going to do with the rest of Sunday, by the way? And what are we going to do after the service? And what are we going to do with our family? And what will we do with friends? And what will we do with people that we like to think about and things we don't like to think about? What will we do with people that are neighbors? But also, what will we do with people who may be enemies? Where will all of those things go in our lives? And here, what Jesus does in this moment when he comes down from the mountain is that he, he encounters the person who represents the greatest demonstration of ritual impurity. A person who was a leper, as you may know, needed to walk through his days saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. As though, though to announce to everyone, stay away from me because I'm not someone to be gotten near. And now Jesus, knowing all that, and saying that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, now encounters the leper, hears the leper's cry, touches the leper, and heals the leper. It is, I think, in Matthew's way of telling the gospel, this concentrated distillation of saying, are you paying attention? Do you see what tangible impact this is meant to be? You encounter the person who might stain you. In this case, ritually or religiously stain you. But we encounter all kinds of people who we think might stain us in some way. Their, their reputations, their personality, their way of living, their habits of life, their race, their ethnicity, their class, their attitudes, their spirit. And we avoid them like the plague, we say. Well, a leper was a person to be avoided like the plague. And yet Jesus, as one committed to both saying and doing the same thing, touches the leper and heals the leper. Now, if all this isn't extraordinary enough, the very next section is Jesus' encounter with a Roman centurion. Here, the centurion comes as an official of the Roman government who says that he has a servant who's ill and needs to be healed. Jesus says, well, I could come and, and heal him. And the man says, no, 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 you don't even need to come and heal him. I know how this works. I am a man under authority. I say the word and people do it. All you need to do is say the word and the man can be healed. Jesus is astounded 
That this one that would have been the incarnation in a certain way of dominating Roman authority, truly the enemy, truly the oppressor, truly the person who, if the leper needed to be avoided for religious reasons, this person, the centurion, needed to be avoided for every political reason. And now Jesus hears the centurion's protests of faith and says, whoa. He turns to those around him. Did you hear what he said? I've not heard faith like this, he says, in all of Israel. There will be some who would think that because of their bloodline, they'll be found in the kingdom of God, who will be found in the outer darkness. And there will be others who think they're in the outer darkness, but who because of this extraordinary expression of faith, will actually be found in the kingdom. He heals the man and affirms his faith as faith greater than all the faith he's heard in Israel. This from an enemy. So first, the leper, the shock of encountering the person who should be avoided like the plague because of religious impurity. And now the centurion, the enemy, the oppressor. And again, Jesus hears and loves and affirms his servant and the man himself. See, the thing about the kingdom of God is that there's enough here to offend everybody. There's enough here to set all of us on edge. There's enough here to say there's a claim being made by Jesus about what we're supposed to say and affirm with our hearts and minds and what we're meant to do that's meant to reorder everything about our relationships. It means that we actually have to be changed. It means that the kingdom of God to do its deep work has to transform us. We don't natively always do what we say, act on what we believe. This is the crisis. This is the depth and scope of our need. And this is the very thing that Jesus comes to respond to. One day a man appeared at my door when I was the pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. He said, you know, I'm I'm very busy. I'm very successful. I'm very wealthy. I don't really have very long for this conversation, but can we talk? (laughs) I said, wow, that's quite an introduction. He said, said, yeah, I, I just need five minutes of your time. I said, okay, well, what's up? He said, well, my wife has been coming to this church and she's coming home and she's talking about Jesus. I don't really know anything about Jesus. So if I could just get some quick bullet points about Jesus, then I'll be on my way and I won't be bothering you anymore. I said, wow, I I see the dilemma. He said, said, yeah, I just need some quick ways of sort of orienting myself because I really just don't know anything about Jesus. I said, well, the thing is, if you've come to the wrong person maybe because I'm not very good actually with bullet points. And, And secondly, if I gave you the bullet points and if you understood the bullet points and if they had a way of working their way into your life, you'd have to rethink your success and your power and your money and your priorities and your family and your job and your fame. All those things would have to be reordered and I didn't really have the feeling that you really want to do that. Oh, I totally don't want to do that, he said. I said, exactly. So uh, really, uh, maybe we could just brainstorm some other things that you could talk about when she brings up Jesus, how you could move that to talking about something else. He said, no, 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 I'm quite serious. I said, oh, I am definitely very serious. And then he got a little more curious. He said, well, what if I came back for an hour? I said, well, an hour is kind of like a fat bullet point, really. He said, what if I came back for two hours? I said, really, I... I'm not being disingenuous. I I do mean that I think this might be more than you're really wanting. He said, what if I came back for a whole morning? And then he said, I don't give anybody a whole morning. I thought, yeah, I bet you don't. He came back for a whole morning. This was not a man with a spiritual hunger. (laughs) There was no evidence whatsoever that he had any actual interest in what we were talking about. But he spent the whole morning. 
He wanted to come back and do it again, which we did again. And every time he came, he told me, don't ever expect me in church. I don't go to church. I can barely say Jesus, and I certainly can't come to church. I said, I get it. So I was shocked about six or seven weeks later when suddenly there he was in the third pew. I thought, wow, things must have gotten really bad at dinner. What is this about? How could he possibly be here? He said, well, I came merely because, well, and then he just sort of collapsed. I said, what's happening? You seem really overwhelmed. He said, all I know is that I was in a, in a building. You know, I don't go into churches, but it happened to be a church. But I put that aside for a minute because I heard it was a really beautiful building. And I was visiting the city and there was this beautiful building. And I decided I wanted to go in and see it. And I just sat quietly there. And all I know is that somehow God just came to me. And now it's just really a mess. I said, yeah, I know. That's what happens. What's happened for his life over the last six years is that it's meant having to rethink his power and his money and his success and his fame and his family and so many other things because he's trying to discover what it means to be a person whose voice and whose touch are brought together. And he would say, I would never look back. This is an invitation to life. But the depth of change that's needed in us means that we, in our very core have to be changed. There's actually a deep, ongoing spiritual transformation that doesn't just happen in a moment, but really over time. There's a lot of work that God has to do that brings our voice and our touch together. And it's in that process that we have to open ourselves to something really much deeper and more profound. One day I was speaking at a conference that had such bright lights on the stage that literally I could see almost no one that I was talking to. But what I could see was a very large video monitor that was pointed back toward the stage that had an image of me. And then on this side of the stage, there was another really large video monitor that had another image of me. And then there was me. There was sort of me and me and me. I thought, this is the postmodern trinity. This is the the world that we all live in, where everything is about me in every direction. Everyone seems perfectly happy with me. Everyone is interested in what I'm interested in. We're all engaged in the same project. This is the world I was made for. And that's what our sociology actually nurtures. How do we foster a life that's really about us, for us, with us, to us, unto us? That's the obsession of our culture. That's what we're nurtured on in so many different ways. And into that reality lands the kingdom of God. I want to give you a new heart, a new mind, a new willingness to live and love, Jesus says, in a way that's that's not just a mirror of yourself, but in a way that's a reflection of the kingdom of God. I think one of the high points in the Sermon on the Mount that tests this is is whether we actually understand that we are following an enemy-loving God. Jesus says, it's no big deal if you love those who love you. The question is, do you love those who don't love you? In fact, do you love those who are your enemies? Now, if that's really the gold standard, that we become people like God who have the capacity to love enemies. That, by the way, is why all of us get to be in the family of God, because we were, Paul says, once enemies of God. But God, who pursues enemies, has loved us into the family of God, and now wants us to be a mirror of that kind of love. If that's the gold standard, we don't have to say, well, you know, enemy love is too much for us. We could start by just saying, what if we began by loving people who were just annoying to us? Maybe... Maybe there's some people in the pews with you this morning who annoy you. Or you'll go home to people who 
annoy you or you will work with people who annoy you. Maybe the place that we begin to put voice and touch together is just practicing with annoying people. And then as we begin to learn a little bit more about loving annoying people, then maybe we can learn to love irritating people. And then there the galling factor is a little greater. It's not just a little bothersome. They kind of grind us in a certain way. It'd be a lot if we became really good at loving, annoying, and irritating people. And what if we could push it a little farther and say, in voice and touch, we need to become people who actually also love those who are really other than us. Not just superficially, but genuinely know people who are really other. Other politically, other socially, other economically, other ethnically or racially. People who really are not like us, And we don't mirror our sociology. We're not looking for ourselves in that relationship. We love them because we're seeking to know someone that is loved by God. And maybe by God's grace it will lead us to the possibility of what one day even becoming people who can love our enemies. This is the transformation of voice and touch that the church is meant to demonstrate. We are meant to be the vivid apologetic, the demonstration, the enactment, the evidence of God's love in the world. We are meant to be those who affirm our faith and live our faith, for whom voice and touch are one reality. It involves encountering people who might stain us and loving us, people who may even be our enemies, and learning to love and know them. This is when the gospel starts moving off the page and into the reality of culture and society in ways that is transformative. Because the only thing that explains a life like this is the power and love and mercy of God. Friends, I am so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful what I've learned and discovered about who you are and what you're doing. Amarillo needs you to be a peculiar people. A people whose voice and touch come together with an unexpected, deep, profound, pervasive authority. An authority that isn't yours, but an authority that comes from Jesus Christ. May your voice and touch, individually and together, be more and more the evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God in Amarillo, the Panhandle, and far beyond. Lord, by your grace, how grateful we are for this salty word. It challenges all of us beyond our comfort zone. Who are those people, oh God, in our lives who are the untouchable? Who are those people that we put in such an other category, a category of such wrong that we barely want to breathe or acknowledge them in their presence? The enemy, the oppressor, the stranger. Oh God, may you give us today a deep reminder of the power of transformative love that sets us free from the smallness of our own heart and mind, the me, me, and me world, and instead sets us free to live in a world that's shaped and made and opened up by the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. To the glory of your great name we pray.